Hey, I'm Sophie. And I'm Sophia. And this is the That Showbiz Baby podcast. So hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. We are excited that you're here, and we are also excited to share that we have a really fun two-part, I guess it's not a two-part episode. It's a two-part little series, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. That works. (laughs) On musical theater, which is something that both Sophia and I love and have some, you know, some background in, which is fun. So before we get to that, we want to kick off with a fun little intro segment. And this week we want to do our This Day in Music History segment. Um, So I'll kick us off. This day, July 20th, 1940, Billboard combined their sales charts for the first time. Um, And I think I'm pretty sure that that means they made kind of like the Billboard Hot 100 for the first time, that they had kind of divided, categorized charts before then. Now they combined it. And so the first number one Billboard song was Tommy Dorsey's I'll Never Smile Again with vocals by Frank Sinatra. So I thought that was a fun one to throw in since, you know, we do talk about the Billboard top top 10, top 100, whatever, you know, sometimes on, on this pod. So Very fun. Um, I'm going to bring it forward to 1964. Uh, July 20th, 1964, the Beatles released four songs, All Cry Instead, I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, I Love Her, and If I Fell. So this was still the early 60s, so these songs are, you know, more early Beatles sounding, more kind of 50s, but they're great songs, so I'd recommend checking them out. Exciting stuff. And (laughs) now moving on to 1969, I have like a music adjacent fact, if you will. Um, That's fine. Yeah. So uh, July 20th, 1969 is the day that the Apollo 11 spacecraft landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the aforementioned moon, which (laughs) (laughs) was a big step for all of mankind that also left its mark in music, which I was not the most aware of before, before this research. And the most notable example is that David Bowie's song, Space Oddity, was used to soundtrack the coverage of Neil Armstrong on the moon. And Bowie was grateful for the publicity, even though the track wasn't made for this purpose. It was originally inspired by the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, and describes an astronaut cutting himself loose and drifting into space. So there's a fun A little bit of a downer for for the the occasion, but still fun. Yeah, I guess it could be like... (laughs) Someone who chose it probably didn't listen all the way through. It's like space. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And then finally, we're going to go to 1986 when the biopic Sid and Nancy was released, which is about Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. So, you know, a fun, fun fact for you all. And now we're going to get into the bulk of the episode, which is about musical theater. Woo woo. (laughs) Some people hate it. We love it. So we're going to talk about it. Yes. And we're going to start off with kind of a decade by decade breakdown of what musical theater was during that time, kind of the sounds, the themes, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to start in the 1920s. So 
Musicals of the 1920s borrowed heavily from vaudeville, musical hall, and other types of entertainment that were popular at the time, so they didn't necessarily sound like the musicals we know today. They largely ignored plot to emphasize the actors, costumes, elaborate sets, and dance routines, and also songs that were popular at the time, so very few musicals had original songs written just for that specific purpose. Most of the productions of the time were lighthearted and focused on comedy. Examples of that type of show are Funny Face and Sally, which I haven't seen either of those, but fun. Maybe I'll check them out. And a big musical of the 20s was Showboat. So this was the first musical that used music to actually move the plot along rather than just to interlude the dialogue. It also dealt with more serious themes like race, gender, gambling, alcoholism, stuff like that, and it has songs that gained popularity outside of the musical and remained popular, such as Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine and Old Man River. So, the 20s overall were a transition from more variety show style performances to cohesive musicals, with Showboat signifying a cultural shift between those two styles. Then on to the 30s. In the 30s, we see a continuation and growth of the musical style we started to see in Showboat, where the songs were meant to drive the plot, and more and more musicals were using original score rather than the popular songs of the time. There were also a lot of jazz influences being seen in 1930s musicals, and there was an expansion on kind of the topics that were covered, as we can see kind of throughout the years that happens. One big musical from the 30s, which I love, is Anything Goes, which was published in 1934 with music and lyrics by Cole Porter. I actually performed in the pit orchestra of my high school rendition of Anything Goes, and it's super fun, really jazzy. It's kind of cheesy, like the plot and stuff, but I think it stands up musically. And the biggest songs from that are probably Anything Goes and I Get a Kick Out of You. That's fun because I was another also, big one. Oh no, sorry to cut you off. <laughs> Wait, what? Yes. But, oh, I was just gonna say I was also in Anything Goes in high school. So twins. <laughs> oh my god, that's really cute. Another thing that makes us twins. Uh, <laughs> another big one of the '30s is Porgy and Bess, written in 1935 by George Gershwin, uh, Dubose. I think is how you say his name. Dubose Hayward and Ira Gershwin. This one is actually an English language opera, and if anyone listening has ever seen it, which I know Sophie has, um, it's pretty intense. It's not my personal favorite, but I'm sure it has a lot of fans. And the song Summertime from that show was a big hit outside of the musical. So a lot of songs from musicals of this era have gone on to be jazz standards, fun fact, And another thing to note is that the 30s were right during the Great Depression, so while there were some musicals, it really wasn't a heyday because most people didn't have extra money to spend on going to the theater. In the 30s, we also saw an increase in movie musicals, such as The Wizard of Oz from 1939, The Gay Divorcee, 1934, which I've also never seen but seems intriguing, and 42nd Street from 1933. Then, sorry I'm talking a lot, you'll get to hear Sophie (laughs) later. Uh, The era from 1940 to 1959 is considered the golden age of musicals. By the 40s, most people were financially recovered from the Depression and were able to spend money on entertainment again. In 1943, Oklahoma premiered on Broadway and did over 2,000 performances, which was a very long run for the time. Most musicals did around 500. Oklahoma was created by the famous duo Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, who went on to do 
many, many famous musicals together. They're, you know, Broadway composition superstars. And by the 40s, musicals were really starting to come into their own with different plots, genres, etc., different musical styles. But it was still the 40s, so there are a lot of problematic parts, especially when it came to gender and race in a lot of these musicals. So don't expect anything too liberated from these times, but there are some good shows. Notable musicals from the 40s are South Pacific, Annie Get Your Gun, Brigadoon, Carousel, and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which ended up being a, a movie adaptation with Marilyn Monroe. The 50s are still part of the golden era. I personally think the 50s produced much better musicals than the 40s. Um, They continued to be very orchestral and big, but they also had some more modern elements as popular music of the time was growing to incorporate more rock and roll and blues and stuff like that. Another note about the golden era in general is that a lot of musicals center heavily around a romance plotline. So that's just something to think about. One of my favorite musicals from the 50s is West Side Story, very popular one, which is an adaptation kind of of Romeo and Juliet that opened on Broadway in 1957. Created by Arthur Lawrence, Leonard Bernstein, and Stephen Sondheim, it's really just a well-composed show. So if you haven't seen it, you know, it's basic Broadway homework. (laughs) And there's a film adaptation, so really no excuse not to watch it. The biggest songs from West Side Story are probably Maria, America somewhere and I feel pretty. Now keep in mind the casting of the film adaptation is pretty questionable and the musical is not without its problems from our modern lens. So just keep those things in mind when watching, but it's a good show. Other big musicals from the 50s are The Sound of Music from 1959, uh, The Music Man 1957, My Fair Lady 56, The King and I 51, and Guys and Dolls from 1950. I also noticed that a lot of musicals in the 50s are reimaginations of plays or literature, so that's something interesting to note as well. Not a lot of, well, there were still original plots, but there were a lot of adaptations during the time. Then, for the last decade that I'm going to cover, the fun 1960s, they are just very fun. Uh, My favorite musical decade that I've talked about so far Uh, Broadway didn't escape, you know, the liberation and growing socio-political consciousness of the 60s. It was definitely impacted. But because Broadway has generally catered to more wealthy and older audiences, the musical traditions of the 40s and 50s still continued as well. And those things kind of coexisted. Some notable 60s musicals are Hair from 1967, which was very notable as it was one of the first times, at least that I know of, where rock was incorporated into a musical. And it was created by Galt McDermott, Jerome Ragney, and James Rado. It's about the sexual revolution and hippie counterculture of the 1960s, and several of the songs became anti-Vietnam war anthems. I'm personally a big fan of hair. It's definitely not for everybody. It's a little out there. It strays away from the typical, you know, love story driven musicals of the past decades, but it's really good. And another notable musical of the 60s is Cabaret by Joe Masteroff and John Kander. This is another one that's like pretty unhinged. It was originally published in 1966, but it's set in 1929. It's about a seedy German nightclub called the Kit Kat Club, as well as an English cabaret performer, Sally Bowles. This one is for sure not for everybody, (laughs) but I personally enjoy it. I think it's a good musical. 
Um, so if you're familiar with any of the musicals I talked about, you can see that the 60s has a lot more bold, sexually liberated musicals that were being written. And other kind of more tame but notable musicals of the 60s are Hello, Dolly, 64, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, 1960, and Camelot, also from 1960, which is a fun musical. And now I pass the torch to Sophie for the 70s. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, I will pick up right where Sophia left off and start with the 70s. So the 1970s were definitely the era of rock musicals. If the 60s kind of, you know, hinted at that, the 70s really embraced that and ran with it. And punk rock and disco were heavy, heavy influences in the music scene in general at the time, which you can tell kind of channeled over into musical theater as well. Um, musical theater music definitely became more rock-based and started to leave behind some of those more traditional golden age styles. Shows began to get a little more dance-heavy. The dancing began to get a little spicier. (laughs) And (laughs) overall, the hippie movement of the 60s definitely extended into the 70s. So those kind of waves of like political demonstrations and cries for different types of liberation definitely continued and that showed up in musical theater as well. But I think something interesting to note where the 70s kind of branched off from the 60s was is, I don't know, that <laughs> the culture became much more individualistic, contrasting the very kind of community, communal focused mindset prevalent in the 60s. And that also kind of showed through musical theater as well. Um, Yeah, so musicals definitely started to shake off a lot of those golden age characteristics and reflected a lot of these cultural shifts and got edgier, I think is a good way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. But overall, the 70s was a decade of just like hugely iconic musicals with legacies still lasting to this day. And before I get into some examples, I think something that's interesting to note is that the 70s also really saw the rise of two uber-famous Broadway composers, which are Andrew Lloyd Webber, who composed Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar in the 70s, and then Stephen Sondheim, who composed Sweeney Todd in the 70s. So, in addition to those that I just mentioned, the shows Evita, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Sweeney Todd, some other musical notable musicals from this time period were Chicago, A Chorus Line, Grease, Annie, and The Wiz. These were all super famous musicals that debuted in the 70s. And I think, again, if you're kind of familiar with these musicals, you can see there is really starting to be a shift in kind of the content that is showing up in musicals. Things are a lot more, a lot edgier, a lot more contemporary topics, and you can see a lot of the cultural shifts show through in the musicals of the time. Moving on from there, um, the 1980s, uh, musical theater in the 1980s, began to get a lot more extravagant and spend-heavy, which I think is really interesting. This also reflected the culture at the time, because the 80s were full of materialism and consumerism. There were a lot of technological developments happening, and just a lot of innovation in that sphere, which brought the sense of optimism. Um, I guess people were willing to spend a little more money. So musicals in the 80s were, likewise, extravagant spectacles, and there was a lot of innovation happening here as well. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Sondheim were continuing their takeover and really helped to characterize the sound of the decade. And musicals in the 80s, um, kind of in line with the, the extravagance of the time, really aimed to wow and delight their audiences. 
And some even go as far to say as uh, grammar. Some even go as far as to say that they felt the 80s were kind of the last years of Broadway's prime and just prevalence or relevance in culture or, you know, kind of Broadway stardom, if you will. Yeah. And another fun fact is that this decade saw the birth of the term mega musical, which was due to these show-stopping performances that were so focused on really big, powerful, stylistic elements, sets, dances, etc. And another fun and interesting fact that I found while researching is that the rather dark musical Carrie came out in the 80s, which really flopped at the time, but has since started to come back. Even really just in recent years, I've kind of seen a surge in popularity of Carrie and people getting really into it. So it's cool that this show, despite not doing so well at first, has kind of come back and, you know, popped onto the scene. But other notable musicals from this time period are Les Mis, The Phantom of the Opera, Into the Woods, Singing in the Rain, Cats, and... My favorite. Yes. And Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So if you can, if you know some of these shows, if you can picture some of them, you can tell there's definitely a lot of like huge, elaborate dance numbers, costumes, just this really big, like so much drama, definitely a very, a very showy, flashy age for musicals. Cats could have come from no other decade than the 80s, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, we love to see it. We do. (laughs) And moving on to the 90s. By the 1990s, Broadway was struggling to remain culturally relevant amidst the changing times and increasingly digital times. So, you know, I guess maybe there is a case for those who said that they felt the 80s were kind of the last decade of popular Broadway-ness. <laughs> because in the 90s, ticket prices were rising and attendance was decreasing and Broadway was kind of falling into a little bit of obscurity in this time period. But musicals in the 90s began to incorporate more modern and mainstream and even youthful elements to kind of try to attempt to appeal more widely to the masses and younger demographics. Some also tackled weighty, prevalent cultural issues, um, like how Rent tackled the kind of HIV-AIDS crisis that was happening in New York. And overall, the biggest development in musical theater in the 90s is that it did become very modernized. It began to appeal to a lot more elements of pop culture, um, kind of as maybe like a, a trying to trying to save itself in a time that it was falling by the wayside, trying to appeal to people when people weren't so interested in it anymore. Um, kind of to this end as well, the 90s was a time of the, the corporate musical, which were big productions pre- produced with hefty funding from corporate sponsors in order to win the, in order to win over the box office. So examples of these corporate musicals would be The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. So other than these two productions that I just mentioned, some other notable musicals from the 90s would be Mamma Mia, Ada, I think is how you pronounce it. Maybe Ida. (laughs) One of the two. But yes, Rent, like I mentioned earlier, and The Secret Garden. You can kind of tell there's not as many big musicals that came out of the 90s and a lot of them were kind of adapted from other stories or of other movies that were kind of you know like repurposed musical theater pieces so in my opinion it definitely wasn't the strongest time for musical theater 
Last, I will take a look at musicals from the 2000s to present, kind of lumping these all together and, you know, considering them all to be kind of modern day musicals. I think, you know, following the 90s, these musicals have really come back and carried on the musical theater legacy much more than the 90s did, in my opinion. Revivals and adaptations of other musicals or movies or books, just stories in general from the past, are still quite popular and common these days. So one of the main complaints about modern day musicals is the lack of originality or particularly the lack of original music. But I do think, you know, there are a lot of new and witty shows out there that are really high energy that have continued to attract audiences with their fun songs and really cool choreography. A theme that is really popular is comedy. Musical comedies are particularly popular and draw a lot of attention these days. A lot of these comedies have kind of worked their way into the mainstream, maybe more than musicals of of the 90s were able to. And one theme, like a musical, as in like music, not musicals, (laughs) a musical theme (laughs) that I've noticed in recent years is that The songs in musicals tend to be more story-centric, they're pretty quick, some of them tend to be a little bit more spoken, and yeah, they really focus on advancing the plot, whereas songs in the past maybe were more about an emotion or a little bit more artful, something that was used to kind of show off the talent of people in the production, but now, yeah, there's definitely a shift. Songs are The songs in musicals have been much more modernized and incorporate a lot of contemporary techniques. But um, innovative techniques and new ideas and these fun, engaging comedies are definitely keeping Broadway alive today and and relevant in pop culture, like I mentioned. And one huge example of this would be Hamilton. That has just been such a prevalent musical that has really, I think, attracted a lot of people to the world of musical theater because it was so popular, because it was so new and innovative that, you know, maybe wouldn't have become so interested in musical theater before. So there are definitely still shows out there that really appeal to a wide audience and are, you know, part of mainstream culture. But other notable musicals from this time period, in addition to Hamilton, would be Wicked, Dear Evan Hansen, The Book of Mormon, In the Heights, Waitress, Newsies, Hairspray, and Kinky Boots. So you can see there's definitely a lot more musicals from the 2000s, 2010s, to now that, you know, are just good classic musicals, I would say. Agreed. Now I'm going to take us way back to even before the 20s. We're going to talk a little bit about Broadway specifically, like the place. And so Broadway, as we know today, is a district in Midtown, New York. Uh, These theaters in this district are usually regarded as, you know, the highest quality theater in the English speaking world. And people come from all over to see shows here. I'm pretty sure there's about 40 theaters that are technically considered Broadway. But in 1750, Thomas Keene and Walter Murray opened one of the first theaters in New York. They held productions of Shakespeare plays and operatic theater. These performances stopped during the Revolutionary War, but picked back up again later at a new theater called the Park Theater. 
Over time, with the success of the Park Theater proving that there was interest in these types of shows, more and more people started building theaters and hosting operas, plays, and shows until it became a premier theater district you know, over time, and more and more theaters got built. The first musical, at least what some people consider to be the first musical, is called The Black Crook, and it's about, like, using black magic and weird stuff like that. It was created in 1866, and it was five and a half hours long, which is horrifying, and (laughs) ran for 474 performances. So that was a long run for this time period. I guess back then, you know, in 1860s, they didn't have much to do. So five and a half hours, that's, you know, their source of entertainment. I'm sure that was fun. And over time, uh, performances that started to look more and more like the musicals we know today gained popularity. And then when we hit the 20s, well, we just took you through then until now. So that's kind of a brief history of the Broadway of New York. Yeah. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about the publishing side of Broadway, which, yeah, as you guys know, probably from your own knowledge or from hearing us talk about publishing before on the podcast, this is the side of musical copyrights that involves compositions or songs. So, you know, not really about like the recording, but the copyright for the song, the melody, the lyrics that the composers would be dealing with. And for the purpose of this podcast episode, I'm not going to go too in-depth, but I am going to touch on two main elements of the logistical publishing side of Broadway and musicals and, you know, the intellectual property that is involved here. So first, I want to touch on the issue of ownership, talk about kind of who owns what when it comes to musicals, and the so-called author, which is a term kind of used to understand who owns the copyright when it comes to these, you know, song publishing copyrights. Um, The author of a musical is the book writer, the composers, and the lyricist. So this could be one or multiple people and, you know, that's a big role. So generally it is split amongst multiple people and it's a split ownership. It wouldn't necessarily fall into the hands of one person. Um, So copyright ownership, this author, you know, which may be multiple people, would retain sole and complete title, both legal and equitable, in and to the play, and all right and uses of every kind, except specifically here and provided. So that's kind of the standard language that just explains that whoever this creator or creators is or are, that they're going to have full ownership of the work that they're producing. So it would be the book, the lines, whatever, all the music, the lyrics, all that stuff kind of lumped into one. And in some cases, yeah, these these people would own um, own the copyright. However, in the modern age, this stand or this kind of structure doesn't happen so much anymore. While this can and still does occur, um, a lot of times there are more work for hire agreements, which would be one company, um, whether that be like a a movie studio who's kind of investing in a musical or any other company kind of in the musical, film, music industries who's investing in a project, they would kind of put the money in, hire people to work for them, but ultimately they would retain the ownership. And that's kind of the structure of a work-for-hire agreement. So that happens quite often too. So there's kind of two different scenarios here. Like I mentioned first, there can either be a copyright can remain in the hands of the author, which would be the actual creators of the work, or it could be 
owned by a company who invests in the work, who hires these creators on under very specific terms, who just pays them but then retains ownership. So those are kind of, yeah, the two scenarios for ownership. And moving on from that, I want to touch on how these creators would get paid. So there's a common royalty formula used on Broadway where all of these royalty participants, these would be creators who are involved in the project, who have some right or stake you know, in the project, who are going to get paid some amount of money from it. So that would include like music and lyric writers, the book writer, director, choreographer, kind of a, a little bit of a wider pool than maybe the like author type people I was talking about before. These people would all share in an agreed upon percentage of the weekly operating profits of the musical with a guaranteed minimum that they would make. So basically, between all of these people, they would split this kind of pool, so to say, that would be part of the operating profit from the week, which is normally around 35%. So 35% of this um, operating profit would be split amongst these creators, and they would each get a percentage that was kind of specified according to the stake that they really had in the project. So People who worked on it or contributed more would get more of this 35% share than others would. And that would be something that they would kind of discuss ahead of time and split up. And each person, normally on a monthly basis, would get their percentage of this 35% pool. Um, and if it you know, wasn't doing so well, wasn't making a lot of money, if that number was going to go pretty low, they would hit like a minimum. And they wouldn't be able to be paid lower than that minimum. So... That is kind of the standard for how people get paid in publishing on Broadway. It's a little bit complicated, but I think it's interesting to think about how all of these creators get to kind of share in a portion of the weekly operating profit from the musical. Amazing. It was beautiful. Well, we'll see you all in part two for some more about musicals. Hope you enjoyed. Um, part two will be out next week. So see you all then. Bye. Thank you all for listening. You can find us on Instagram at sophia.productions and please go rate, download, and follow wherever you get your podcasts.